Hello folks and welcome to the Antifada. Sean KB here uh, with another solo episode, but I've got some great guests. Um, we, uh, we're going to do a peek into, I think, the world's most hilarious societal meltdown. And for that, we have our two uh, Great Britain correspondents, uh, Riley and Nate from Trash Future, who join us from uh, London. Uh, guys, how's it going? Thanks for being with us. Hey, man. Uh, it's going very well. Thank you for having us. Uh, always happy to be back on uh, the Antifada uh, to remind America that uh, don't worry, there is another country that is throwing itself into terminal decline uh, sort of a little faster than you. <laughs> well, thank you for that. I think it's something that America should aspire to. But actually, I think we're already on that. I was going to introduce Trash Future as uh, Britain's number one culture and politics podcast. I'm not sure if that's true, but it sounds pretty good. You guys are it, doing it great well over be. there. You know what? Because, because ultimately, British podcasting is weirdly walled off with mostly... Uh, ex-TV comedians and BBC people. And so it's, it's incredibly, how do you describe this? Kind of stuffy and kind of boring. And so if you do a show where you're willing to make jokes and talk to people that aren't, you know, screened out based on the fanciness of their accent, uh, people tend to like it. And so we've had a great time doing it. Um, your listeners might notice from both me and Riley's voices that neither of us is British. Uh, I've lived in this country for three years. Riley, you've lived here for like 10 years, haven't you? Yeah, I, I counted my 10th year this uh, this this past September. And um, boy, do I have a lot of personal reasons for being here. But uh, I am always asked, hey, why are you here? <laughs> yeah, I, I would I would say this, too, because it's it's an interesting perspective to have in the sense that if you come here and you have to work, you have to live, you have to deal with the society and engage with things and learn like what stuff is. If you're not from here, much like in America, you know, if you were a British person who comes over to America and then, you know, you're in, I don't know, like you're at some place and they decide to start playing, you know, a barbecue restaurant that makes you say the Fledge of Allegiance or something like that. You're just like, what the fuck is happening? And why does everyone think this is normal? That's the way Riley and I are about Britain <laughs> that like we've had to get to know stuff because it's sort of how you exist and live here. But from an outsider's perspective, you're like, but that's insane. Why would you do that? <laughs> why, why, why does this matter? Like, this is the dumbest thing to get mad about. And so mm. hopefully we can give some perspective that way that like both, from what it's like to experience it and also for what it's like to be sort of the odd person out watching this place, you know, watching people dress up in Spitfire costumes like World War II planes <laughs> and do a conga line outside to celebrate a fake holiday because the government decided that VE Day from World War II is going to be a new holiday for some reason. They decided this in 2021. Well, it's one thing that you got to realize about Britain is that everybody in Britain above a certain age just loves getting dressed up. Like we are absolutely insane about our... um sort of elaborate and slightly too uh, literal visual pro visual gag protests. Like Very true, um, yes. just today, someone, someone, some like, again, that's the answer. It's usually in America. That would often be the realm of conservatives who like to, you know what it is? They like to conservatives in America, like to find a product, like a company that's like stopped advertising with Tucker Carlson and then go out en masse and buy their products to film them. Like, you know, doing an elbow drop onto it. Right. Uh, in, in Britain, it's a bit different where what they like to do is get dressed up in costumes of the things that are making them mad and then say, uh, I, I suck. I'm making this country bad. So, for example, it's one of the sort of mega mega liberal remain people because they you know, the EU vote like continuity remain still sort of lives on like you know, Japanese soldiers on islands who were right. told the war was over <laughs> uh, got dressed up today in a uh, Soviet colonel's outfit to go. Yes 
into the Conservative Party conference and ask one of the ministers uh, if he was still interested in getting checks from the USSR in order to accomplish Brexit. Wow. Like, it, it's just very, very, very unusual. But I, I it's have a, a, I, really deep and ingrained part of the British psyche. I have a theory that every British adult has to pick. It's like a sorting hat ceremony for the Harry Potter fans. If that's the right thing, I don't actually know anything about Harry Potter. Uh, basically it's like a coming of age ritual. When you're 40, you have to pick one thing to go completely fucking insane <laughs> about. And every British adult over the age of 40, they have their thing, their one thing. Now I'm, I'm 37. So, and technically I'm a British citizen. So maybe I'm oh. not exempt three years from now. I'm just going to, you're just going to hear me screaming about cycle lanes or something <laughs> like that. But they pick a thing, they go insane about it. And uh, unfortunately, a significant chunk of this country has decided that uh, the thing they're going to go insane about is to believe that they fought in World War II, despite being born well after the war, and that everything that came about in terms of like mass suffering and privation as a part of the war was actually good. And that means that no matter how much you fuck your own life up, uh, you still possess the, the blitz spirit. And I feel like that's going to factor in quite well when we discuss some of the things going on right now. Oh, big time. Yeah. I mean, from the other side of the pond, right? It, it seems as though uh, never before has a society's reality uh, been so far out of step with its self-image, right? You have supply chains breaking down at this yes. very moment. Uh, you have jobs, important jobs, including like lorry drivers that are going unfilled. Yep. Uh, you have petrol stations, which are empty right now. And Correct. yet you still have this like self-satisfied ruling class, maybe the most smug ruling class in world history that's kind of soldiering on, oblivious to this decline. Uh, and then the other thing we want to talk about today is, uh, meanwhile, you have Keir Starmer, and the forces of centrist reaction uh, who have successfully purged the Labour Party of any dissent, especially from the left, and putting Corbynism to a a very, very sad end. So from over here, from New York City, it looks like pure chaos, right? You know, I'm I'm imagining like, um, you know, soldiers in the streets, and I'm imagining like societal (laughs) breakdown. I'm imagining dogs and cats living together, real end time shit. But then again, You know, here in New York City, if you listen to the right wing press over the last year, year and a half, you would think that New York City has become a complete fucking war zone, right? That there's crime everywhere. People are just getting shot in the street left and right. There's like vaccine fascism everywhere. And we're all like docile sheep bowing down to the Fauci regime. And New York City is just falling apart. But here in New York, things are relatively normal. So what is the situation in the UK? Is it normal? What is the mood going on over there? Is this like, am I looking at this from the outside and saying, oh, this is a society breaking down? Or is it indeed a society going insane and losing itself? What do you guys say? Riley, you go first, because I, 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 I have seen some of this in person, but uh, I, I want to contextualize it. So please go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I haven't seen much of it personally. And that's because a lot of the of a lot of the things that happen in Britain, kind of inner London tends to be sort of shielded from most of it. Like, I don't know, I, I haven't I I it's like I know that by the numbers, right? Like the supply chains are under extreme stress. I know that like tons of places in the UK are going without petrol. I know that tons of like tons a lot of like um, supermarket shelves outside central London are quite uh, let's say in a dire position. And um I also know that none of the things the government uh, are do are planning to do are working. Like for example, um, there was because you you mentioned the sort of um, lorry driver shortage. Uh, they that was in part because you know the UK 
the UK's model is to rely on you know cheap, easily exploitable, um, uh, sort of tenuous labor to sort right. of get most things done. Brexit kind of in a Brexit did a lot of things. It it, it sort of took that away from them. Yes, but they're not willing to become a high wage economy, no matter what. Like no matter what they say, they're not willing to undertake the necessary changes that would be required for that to happen. And so they are keep trying to like the, the story of British politics, especially in the last sort of. I don't know, kind of since Blair is a story of um, trying to just square the circle long enough to be seen to be doing something um, because what we create these problems because of the sense of realism that says, well, the problems are necessary to create and we love them. Um, and then we sort of, it, it comes to a point where you have to solve the problem. Like the best example of this was actually in um, eviction moratoriums that happened uh, during COVID is that, the government sort of hopes against hope that you know the the problem will sort of solve itself before they have to do the thing they hate the most and govern again, uh. Uh, right? And to sort of do something about it. So they ended up extending these eviction moratoriums with like fifteen minutes to go, sort of twice, right? Because these are not people who are interested in just like whether or not they're governing sort of for the benefit of labor or capital. The weird thing about the British political system, especially sort of the Conservative Party, is that they're not really interested in governing at all. No. Like they mostly just resent having to do stuff. Mm. So, you know, most of what they do tends to be like extremely reactionary, benefit the wealthy and the capital, especially. And that's because most of what they do is just implement reports that are like think tanks, like like friendly Tory, Tory friendly think tanks will drop policy for them and they'll just implement it. And the job of the politician is supposed to be to get his palms greased and go to garden parties and so on. And sure. the kind of that's very explicit here. So it's like right? they never so even they left resent. Like they never left eating. They're greasing their palms and just kind of hanging yeah. out and eating at buffets. Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean they have caseworker staff, but it, it's very strange in the United Kingdom, for example, um, you know, if you were to contact your congressperson in America, particularly if you live outside of a major city, my experience with contacting my congressperson in America when I lived in New York City was I would get no response. And if I contacted them uh, when I lived outside of a major city, like I might get something back from an intern, but it was never uh, anything personalized. And it was almost always a pro forma sort of like copy paste letters thing. Whereas numerous people here, when they've reached out to their, to their Tory MP, for example, about a social issue have, have basically gotten back an email that sounds like it was composed while grouse hunting about like, <laughs> I, I, I will not bow beneath the woke Marxists or something along these lines. Right. <laughs> and you realize that like their job, their actual job is low stakes enough that they can take time out of their day to just write a completely insane, like Chuck Grassley level screed, but very British, uh, because they they do have things they have to be at. But what I found is that this I have this this not even really fleshed out theory that one of the things that made Reaganism function in America was that they had they were all craven psychos, mm. but they had people with experience in government and government bureaucracy helping them to dismantle the mm. purview of the government. Mm -hmm. And I think the same is true with Thatcherism in the sense that you had people who, you know, the 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 conservative party didn't really support Thatcher in the beginning because they thought she was like this insane right-wing economic ide ideologue. Mm -hmm. And, but then she delivered this 
immense victory for them in 1983 and, and then again in 1987. And, you know, they came along. But like the people who were in the conservative party at the time were people who had served, you know, as MPs during the post-war settlement, during mm-hmm. the, 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 the Trump Glorias, if you will. And they, they knew how to do shit in the government, even if what they were doing was dismantling the government. Sure. And so I would make this argument that, 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 uh, you know, Boris Johnsonism, if such a thing exists, and it, it is, is similar to Trumpism in the sense that it's like if Trumpism was dumber Reaganism, then uh, Johnsonism is dumber, is dumber Thatcherism. Thatcherism. Right, right. Like in the sense that it's the same sort of function, this kind of like, all right, s- deliver the pithy lines while we dismantle the government. But this time, e- all of the apparatchiks are dumber than shit and don't actually have any experience or they just, they've just gone to like, you know, the British equivalent of Duke law to just learn catchphrases about Reaganism. Right. Like, and to be able to quote suck. like a Greek, like a Homeric poem about austerity. Yeah. yeah, or whatever. yeah. There's yeah. a very deeply British English, you know, and I, I should specify English because they, they, this is all sort of English upper class stuff. Yeah. Um, there are plenty of horror, Scottish Tories and insane Northern Ireland unionists, oh God, yeah. but like their particular brand of crazy is not really represented in this sort of arch Tory that we're describing. And I think the thing that, that has really surprised me about this is just that they can just deliver stupid quips and they'd be like, no, we're not going to do anything. And they don't suffer at all for it uh, politically. They don't because suffer at all. Yeah. This is, this is like a one party state. And then to close right. off what I'd say is that my, my experience has been I took the bus to get to the studio today. Buses seem to be working fine, but I've heard outside of London or like in outer London and in the greater kind of home counties area that there have been serious delays because of buses not being able to get fuel. Mm. Um, I haven't seen anything with, uh, with, with grocery shelves where I live being out of, out of stuff, but I've obviously there's people in other parts of the Southeast where apparently it's been a huge problem. I do see the chaos with uh, petrol station with, with gas stations in the sense that, uh, one of my bike routes to get to uh, our studio takes me past a BP send- station. And like, even on like at a time of day when traffic is relatively placid elsewhere in the city, once you get within a quarter mile of that station, it's fucking pandemonium. Mm. And it's been out of fuel for the past couple of days. So in the early morning, you'll see people like thinking they're trying to be sneaky and get in and get in the queue, but they just have cones in front of them because they're completely out of fuel. Right. And so especially on, on Monday morning uh, with, at the same time of people trying to take their kids to school and like uh, garbage trucks coming to pick up garbage that morning. Like I, I always remember thinking to myself, like if you laid on the horn this long in America, like someone would get a gun out and start <laughs> shooting people. Uh, like it's just, there's straight up fist happening. fights. There's straight up fist fights. Oh, yeah. I watched like a compilation video of like English uh, yeah, people same. punching each other. And, and some of those are in London. Like some of those, some of those are definitely outside of London, but some of those are in London too. So that is happening. Um, and then I guess the one thing I would say too, is that, cause I realize a lot of people may not be familiar with the whole Brexit saga. The biggest oh, thing I would say about Brexit it. is that, yeah. is that the United Kingdom basically engineered its way into having from a, from a, like a economic conservative perspective, the best of both worlds with its relationship with the EU, right. it had stricter passport controls, uh, at least in the sense of having to show passports to get into the country. Um, you, you, they, they weren't, they weren't part of the Schengen zone. So although you could live in the United Kingdom, live and work in the United Kingdom with an EU nation's passport, uh, you still had to show it. You couldn't travel, you know, across borders without showing identification. Mm. So they, and then similarly, uh, because the United Kingdom didn't join the Euro, uh, it has a stronger currency. And as such, like it benefits as kind of like a suction effect or it benefited that if you wanted to make money, 
uh, you know, working in shit conditions, but making more money than you would at home in, you know, in Romania, in Poland, right. in the Baltic countries. The exchange in rate would help you put some savings. The exchange aside. would help you massively. Yeah. And so effectively since 2004, Britain's economy was basically shored up like the EU and EU migration allowed the British economy to basically put as much downward pressure on wages as possible. Mm -hmm. So something that I would point out to, and I'll hand it over to Riley, is that um, a lot of Americans may not realize this. Like in 2004, for example, I remember being a college student and a friend of mine was like thinking about studying here, but couldn't afford it because at the time the pound was almost $2 to the pound. Um, So the the economy was really, the, the, the currency was really strong. But the point I would make here is that that doesn't necessarily correspond with wage growth. And the pound is definitely weaker now. Um, the UK has the worst wage growth in Europe, except for Greece. Uh, like to put it in perspective, all but a few like handpicked, like white collar jobs have seen wage growth outpace inflation. Mm. Um, and to the point where I can just speak anecdotally and Riley can probably fill in with more, with more details than me. I know for a fact that say, for example, a job like a white collar college graduate job in say a media related thing that in New York city, you would, would get you, you know, on the low end, like 45 to 50,000 and on the high end, closer to 80,000. Like you would be lucky in London to get, uh, you know, 24, 25,000 pounds a year. Mm. And the thing you've got to realize is that London has, uh, in my experience, a, a higher cost of living than New York City, both for housing and oh, for essentials. Sure, yeah. So you 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 basically and like not a lot of people are going to shed a lot of tears about media jobs in the UK. But the point I'm trying to say here is more that like in a country where the minimum wage is is is, is age graduated, so you get paid less when you're under 18 and then less when you're under 25. Mm. Um, for apprenticeships and for teenagers, the minimum wage is like less than six dollars equivalent an hour. Jesus you know, in places where like in London, in inner London, where they're hiring and they're hiring for like nine pounds an hour in a place where it's hard to find a room for less than 600 pounds a month within like, let's say a 30 to 45 minute one way trip on public transit. Um, you have this economy with incredible downward pressure on wages and and an and increasing cost of living. But, you know, wages not increasing with inflation or, or outpacing inflation. And they shored this up by basically and kind of masked the problems of the economy by bringing in and, and catering to hiring, you know, Eastern Europeans who were willing to come and work in, in, in conditions that British people wouldn't work in. And I'm not saying this to disparage those, those, those workers, like they were working their asses off. They made this fucking garbage treats country function <laughs> by their, by their blood, by sweat, the sweat and tears. They were living, they were living in fucking, you know, eight, eight like two to a double bedroom, eight to a house, fucking boarding houses. It feels like every goddamn, every family size property in this city is basically a boarding house. Like they, they were living that way to, to subsidize, the British economy. Right. There's the thing like, was, yeah. Uh, and, and so the, the thing I would close on is just that, you know, the, when, when austerity post 2010 really started to bite in terms of quality of life, the, the Tories basically pivoted to what had been a fringe position before to endorse, you know, full Brexit now, et cetera, and, and get out of the EU. But the thing about it is, is that 
they never really addressed that contradiction that the entirety of the UK's exploitative service economy functioned only because it had an endless supply of people who were willing to be exploited right. because, you know, and, and, and these lorry drivers are an example. They'll, they've interviewed guys from Hungary, from Poland. They'll say like, England fucking sucks, but I'm willing to work there for 10 years so I could then come back and, you know, buy a house and start my own business and that mm-hmm. kind of a thing. They basically cut that off to, 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 to appease a kind of like weird nativism um, which Americans have a hard time understanding because so much of what we 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 under understand is you know post civil rights movement when like Eastern Europeans became white all of a sudden. Mm. But like imagine living in a country where they don't see them as white, right, and, right, right. And that kind of thing was happening, and so they never addressed that. And now, not only they you know people went home during the the pandemic and didn't come back, and new people can't come in. And like Riley said, and I'll hand it over because I'm talking a while. Uh, they refuse to pay people more. Right. They're like, get the army, get prisoners. We don't want to pay higher <laughs> wages. And sure enough, you know, now we're, we're facing, you know, a shortage of lorry drivers, a shortage of um, 15,000 pigs being called because yeah, there's nobody to butcher them. There's no, there's no way to, to, to slaughter and process them. Yep. Farmers going out of business because no one's there to pick their produce because for forever they've relied on Romanians and Bulgarians to just be brought there by more or less by charter bus and just dropped off and like, all right, here's your, here's your, your workers. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's grim. And I would say if you, if, if, if you're listening and you're interested in this stuff, the financial times has done some great reporting on, you know, what the conditions were like for these people mm. and Britain functioned because they were willing to come here and be exploited and then decided they would shore up, you know, people who live in towns with no immigrants being racist against immigrants. And, uh, and then it cut off the treat supply. <laughs> so I've talked a while, Riley, I know you've got some <laughs> so thoughts on this. Pick it up. Riley. I, I certainly do. So basically, right. Like, yeah, we, what you're saying is absolutely right. That like, there is a, and it, it, there's an unwillingness to acknowledge that in order to have the economy that the UK enjoyed without also say, but while also having say very low trade union penetration, very low trade union militancy, very low, like relatively like low wages and stuff. Uh, there's kind of no way to have all of these things at once. Like it's sort of, it's, and, and because British politicians tend to be so sort of pig headedly unwilling to learn anything. Um, and the very idea, cut off from normal people's lives. Mm-hmm. Extremely. Um, and not just cut off from normal people's lives, but completely, completely insulated from having to think about the world, just having to think about how anything might actually work. Right. Like, um, so because there's, there's, there's a total faith. And I think this is also partly born from the fact that a lot of them went to, went to schools where the main thing you learn is how to confidently defend a position you don't believe in or care about. Um, uh, an Oxford <laughs> union ruling class. Kind of. Yeah. Uh, and you don't. And so for example, you just know what your job, your job is to like hit these buttons that give, you know, the homunculi who work in uh, Britain's press, like a big dopamine hit, right? <laughs> you know, your job is to push those buttons and it doesn't really matter what comes of it because you could, because you have this ability to just make yourself have complete faith in, um, very sort of abstract models, right? So the abstract model that the current, that the conservative party has and that the labor party as it is now has fought very hard to get back is that basically, you know, you could more or less perfect um, uh, labor mobility between jobs, right? 
that uh, everyone is just an HGV or sort of heavy goods vehicle, so a lorry. Everyone's just a lorry driver in waiting if we need to have lorries. Uh, everyone's uh, every uh, that you know people will people will uh, adjust to their people will adjust the thermostats if uh, petrol becomes too expensive so we can't run natural gas stations because right. that's another big problem power became very expensive yeah something um, like two million and, people are going to be like out of heat by this winter yes. they, they say but but it's sort of assumed and, and every sort of bit of British politics is attuned to um, ignoring these problems and saying the people who aren't ignoring them are, are being uh, uh, unpatriotic or uh, negative or uh, are just sort of boring and shouldn't be listened to because there's a deep desire throughout this entire country to not take anything seriously. That if you're at a high level in something and you're taking a public issue seriously, then you are not yourself to be taken seriously. It's like the thing that they hated the most about Corbyn um, was in amongst a bunch of other things um, that he was willing to take the problem seriously, which the British sort of political and media elite who all sort of I think, comprise an extended British state find to be uh, irritating mm. and <laughs> annoying. So for example, at the beginning of the pandemic, he's, he talks about a lot of the public health measures that would be sort of begrudgingly and half implemented later. Then again, he was pilloried for it mm. because they were like, oh, this is boring. This is stupid. This is, you know, doom mongering. Um, why can't you, it was, there was a real sense of like indignity that they had to endure um, having to talk and think seriously about these things. Like I talked earlier, right. About how the favorite, of the British political class, their favorite thing to do is implement a kind of last-minute hasty fudge to try to square to square these circles that they they need to square. Like we need in order for the treat economy to work, which we can't really and don't want to retool. We need people to get the treats around, mm. and we need that means we're going to have to undo some of that nativism we did that removed all of the people that we were sort of you know ruthlessly exploiting to get all the treats around, mm -hmm. and so. Again, a day late and a dollar short, they introduce a sort of insulting, dif difficult to use, uh, short, extremely time limited uh, visa right. for lorry drivers from Europe. They right. tried to get 150,000, and in the first couple of weeks of the scheme, they get 37. <laughs> because nobody, I was reading about this in the Financial Times too. Why would people come? Why would you come? If you like left Britain after Brexit, you're, mm. you're Romanian or you know, uh, Polish, and you left, what, what would compel you to go back? You've been treated like oh. utter, utter shit, and they're just going to expect 150,000 people. People are just appear magically. Well, yes, they do. They do expect it because one of the things that you, one of these unchallenged beliefs that, again, if you try to take seriously, you would understand is nonsense, is that Britain is the greatest possible country in the yes, entire world. That's a huge. And part. you're not allowed to, and no one is allowed to know anything. It's impossible to know anything different, right? And that's insane and so, to me. But yeah, and so. And, and dealing with the fact that lots of people don't want to come here would require dealing with that, which is, as we've learned, political suicide. Mm -hmm. So we're just sort of saying these problems are going to go unsolved until we can kind of. And again, this is one of the things that's leading the transformation of the British state, right, is that none of the none of the people who are currently in charge specifically, they actually don't want to do anything to fix it. But many of the problems are becoming sort of so severe that they're threatening the uh, ongoing they're they're threatening the ongoing ability of say british society to reproduce itself sure yeah and so and so just just to undertake the, the task of social production of social reproduction they need to do things like take uh pay seriously that's how you get the furlough scheme that actually ended up working 
pretty well. What was the furlough right? scheme? So, oh, go let ahead. Me just, let me just specify something really quickly with the furlough scheme because this is something that Americans may not realize. Britain did provide support to people to not lose their jobs during the pandemic. Mm. But one of the things they did that's different than America was there was no cash assistance anywhere close to what America did with expanded UI. And I realized yeah. that expanded UI in America was very unevenly distributed and that like some, you know, right-wing states rejected it. Mm-hmm. But in Britain, there there was a very small, still significant, but small increase to uh, the cash assistance program that does exist. However, uh, all of the uh, furlough scheme and income and support was basically the government um, uh, basically providing a fiscal stimulus to commercial banks to loan to businesses in order to support their bottom line and keep people, even if on 50% work, like like half-time furlough, keep their jobs so they didn't actually cut jobs. Oh, so there was support to people to keep them in jobs, but the thing was is there was almost no direct assistance to the individual citizen. Okay. Certainly nothing on the scope of what happened in America, but from my view of this, and I'll let Riley talk again, I don't think there was as much in America to support. Uh, well, put it this way: the st- from what I, the impression that I got was that the, the funds that were given to businesses in America were just turned around and used for stock buybacks for companies that then fired people anyway. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I might be reading that wrong. I haven't been back to America in two years, but here, what happened was my wife was affected by this. Um, people were put on reduction in time and reduction in salary, but the budgets of the companies were basically shored up by low interest or no interest commercial loans from banks. But it wasn't the government to Riley's point about them refusing to govern. This would be a critical instance where it would make sense for the government to just loan directly to businesses. Mm. However, in the case of the furlough scheme, it had to be routed through commercial banks Mm, because in Britain, nothing, even if it's 10 times less efficient to do it uh, privately than it would be for the government to administer it directly as a point of principle, they will never administer it directly. Mm. Uh, There were small business loans you could apply to um, directly from the government, but uh, I'm pretty sure some of that had to be routed through banks. And I definitely know that the furlough income support stuff was. And real quick, the the universal credit I hear is being cut. That is a direct cash payment. So let me me throw this in really quickly. Universal credit is basically like the the Andrew Yang dream come true in (laughs) Britain. They got rid of a bunch of assistance programs and lumped them into a single cash payment program Mm. during the, so basically, uh, housing support, job seekers allowance. Um, there was income support. There was, a, I think it was like six or eight benefits that the, uh, there was a working tax credit, um, child tax credit, stuff like that. These were all programs that were administered separately to s- assist people as part of like the British Means welfare tested. state, which, yeah. which has been drastically cut since the seventies. Um, I think we talked about this in the last time we were on, but in, in the late seventies, something like 45, close to 50% of British people lived in state owned public housing. That is definitely not the case. Council the government sold, sold it off. Uh, and it was a very popular program that created an entire generation of petty landlords. I, so I want to get back to stuff. that, but go on. Yeah. But basically universal credit is a program that you can apply for is, uh, it, that can provide, will provide you if, uh, with cash assistance. It's, it's quite low compared to other European countries. Uh, like the, I, I won't go into the specifics of it, but uh, it's very low relative to the cost of living here and certainly relative to other countries in Europe. Um, there's also been a huge problem in the past that it takes so long to get it. And when you apply your other benefits get kicked off. 
off. Mm. So effectively, there's lots of people who have wound up like either being in serious debt or in arrears because they have to wait for six to eight weeks for the payments to go through and they can't pay their bills. Mm. However, in March 2020, the government opted to increase universal credit by 20 pounds a week. 20 pounds 20, a week. Oof. That's about $27. Sure. And now they are letting it lapse. Yeah. So that money is being cut now. Uh, so that when people say this is the, the, the biggest... Um, this is the biggest cut to the welfare state in Britain's history. That's, that's a very fair point. But the other point they would make is that just raising universal credit by 20 pounds a week in 2020 made a pretty significant difference in people's cash assistance. Because I mean, quite yeah. frankly, this country, the median family income is about 28,000 pounds a year, but the median individual income in this country is less than is around 14,000 pounds a year. Wow. And obviously that factors in a lot of people who are not in work, uh, who are adults, obviously um, that's about 16 and a half or $17,000 uh, a year in income um, in regions outside of London, the median salary for people in work, like in, in Northern Ireland and parts of uh, the Northeast of, of the United Kingdom uh, is around anywhere from basically it's so low that if you wanted to sponsor your spouse's visa, you, on an on an average income, you wouldn't make enough money for the government to allow you to bring your spouse to this country. Wow! So it's, like, it's like fifteen thousand so American dollars or twenty thousand American. Yeah, dollars. like 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 between. They're not wrong when they say that in terms of pure dollar terms alone, if Britain became a state of America, it would be the poorest state by mm. median income significantly, and yet by, the, by a huge margin. And yet London represents this this bubble in which you guys are in, and and you were yes. talking about the difference between what's going on at petrol stations outside and what's happening. Yeah inside where you have this sort of cosseted uh, treat eating class which yes. kind of sits and reads the independent and reads the guardian you know and they reads yeah. the tory press or yeah. the or the the starmer press they, uh, various flavors of transphobia yes yes right you have like the very concentrated point in turf island down there in the southeast yes. and then you have the outside of it I think that's a very, very important dynamic. And that I think, as I understand it, goes some way in sort of understanding how Brexit came about in terms yes. of like a certain segment of the working class, especially in post-industrial areas, kind of um, uniting and allying with a, a very retrograde section of your ruling class. I'm thinking Nigel Farage and all those people yeah. Yeah. in order to well, push it, it through ended up being a any little, solution. Uh, and it ended up being a little more complicated than that as well. Like a lot of it also is the... It's very easy, I and mean, a lot of sort of UK sort of commentators tend to think this, that, ah, well, Bishop Stortford was always, you know, a sort of working class town in the north, therefore it still is. No, 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 the no, other no, 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 you're thinking Bishop Auckland. Bishop Auckland, sorry. <laughs> Bishop, <laughs> Bishop Stortford's in Essex. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sorry, excuse me, I meant Bishop Auckland. For our um, Bishop yeah. Auckland listeners out there, we apologize. <laughs> uh, we well, put a retraction the, the, the in the show notes. For Riley, the surest way for Riley to shoot his credibility, his accent yeah. notwithstanding, would be to, to mistake a town in the north for a town in Essex. So it's important <laughs> he makes that correction. All right, I, I, will, tr I will take that again. Uh, in fact, let's just, no, we're let's just maintain it. that. Right. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> well, so look, there's this, there's this idea that... Um, that towns like Bishop Auckland are, um, are, are and were always uh, working class towns. And that's always been true. And it's largely, largely because 
a lot of the people in the UK, especially the comment, the people who the people who form what is publicly true, right? The people who may who and then these are columnists, think tankers, like politics. This is a unity of people who have a monopoly over what can be considered publicly realistic mm-hmm. and true. Is most of their vision of what the country is kind of stopped getting updated in the seventies, except when they see an Alexa, and then they're very impressed. <laughs> um, and so, hence the hence the need for trash future to exist. <laughs> and so it, what happens is is that they'll say, ah, well, these old working class towns up in the north and so on, you know, they turned from labor. And that's you know, partly true. Like there has been, there was a sort of major reorientation of um, sort of a lot of British politics towards middle management uh, in the uh, sort of after after Blair and in and through to Cameron. Like they were very, very similar in that way. Um, and a lot of that ended up being, you know, highly paid knowledge workers in places like London. Uh, but not just London, also sort of other cities as well have gone much yeah. the same route, like Manchester, Brighton. Um, Bristol, Leeds, all these places. Say, Manche- Manchester and Bristol are great examples of where you have outside of the metro- metropole, you do have pretty vibrant economies, but like they are super unevenly distributed. And so as a result, you wind up with, you know, cities like Bristol getting massively gentrified, similarly with Manchester, where like Manchester didn't really have a homeless problem in the 2000s or the 90s. And now it very much does because Mm of, uh, you know, developers and and prices going really, really high. Um, But like Riley is saying, uh, the there was a suction factor in the sense that these 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 towns uh, one of the reasons why they're so right wing now is because the only way to get like an upwardly mobile job is to leave. Mm. Yeah. So the people who live there are actually retired, mm. mainly. They're the um, people born in the 50s that believe that they they fought through the Blitz or whatever. Yes. Oh, and well, they had yeah. the most generous iteration of the British welfare state supporting them throughout their life. Sure. And then once they no longer, they aged out of whatever phase that was, they're like, oh, won't be needing that, will I? Classic and, American uh, boomer shit, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Oh, my God. That's uh, Riley, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm just going to throw well, this go really ahead, fast. Go ahead. This observation that I have felt that I feel like uh, Americans could maybe use to help conceive of this place is that Britain still has a much more vibrant and much more supportive welfare state than America does because it never, America never really really had one to begin with. But if you traverse the distance that it has fallen, it has been cut since 1979. It's so fucking massive. It is much more dire, much more dramatic than the cuts under Reagan and subsequently under Clinton. Like, it's 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 so night and day. It's not even funny. Well, you talked unrecognizable country. I wanted to get back to this. I'm sorry, Riley. We'll get back to, uh, no, please, to please. you in a second. But um, when you had mentioned the the kind of homology that exists between, let's say, Reaganism and Trumpism, and then of course to Thatcherism and now Boris Johnsonism, if, yeah. if that's a thing, you know, I think in your instance, like Thatcher's big trick. You know, there was the marketization of a lot that continues under yes. Blair, but the big trick was giving massive amounts of public assets. I mean, mostly the council selling estates, them off. selling them off and creating, like you said, this cosseted petty bourgeois land ownership class. Also yes. the, the railroads, right? And the, yes. and the, and the national post yeah, and stuff and like the that. Post, the that, post office, but the railroads. That's a trick you can do once. Well, sorry, the, right? the post you office actually happened much later. That yeah, was the post office Cameron. happened under, got, under Cameron, but yeah. They got a Canadian woman to do it. There nice. you have it. That's a little well, Canadian reason why we're having, you, Riley. The reason why we're potentially having a natural gas shortage, um, you know, uh, with regard to why gas prices are increasing like 30, 40% overnight for he and, and most people in Britain heat their homes with natural gas boilers, like the overwhelming majority. Uh, and so 
this country is really, really dependent on natural gas. Now we, we, we supply our own natural gas in the sense that there's gas fields in the North sea, but that's not, it's not like that's going straight to Britain and there's like, you know, natural gas autarky in this country. Like it's all marketized. So the, under normal circumstances, there would be a, a reserve in this country they could draw upon to normalize prices during a crisis. However, as you can probably guess, they sold all that capacity off in the of 2010s, I believe, sure. like early, early part of the coalition years when the Tories and the Lib Dems were in coalition uh, because they said it was inefficient. They didn't need it because, you know, why, why would we ever have, you know, a need for excess natural gas? <laughs> Let's do just now, in time production for our heating for the entire Yeah, yeah exactly. And so now we're, we're staring down the barrel of the pot. I mean, genuinely overnight, people's on o- October 1st, people started getting charged uh, way more, you know, per kilowatt hour per, I can't remember the increment that it's measured in for natural gas and understand that the poorest people in this country, this is the thing I don't know. I don't think we have this in America in Britain. The poorest people in this country live in housing that has pay as you go meters for utilities. Uh, you and literally you run, put the little coin in the thing. Do they still have that? You, I think it's you a basically card take a, a card. You take a card or you take like a stick and you have to go <laughs> down to like a corner shop or a place that sells it and you put credit on it and then you load it up in the machine. And if you run out, it it turns off. Wow. That's so, so you were in a situation where like people who are on incredibly low incomes yeah. are facing the possibility that all of a sudden, you know, they're they're getting their uni- universal credit cut mm-hmm. and they're also getting way more expensive prices. There is I wouldn't say that inflation has become massive here, but you have seen inflation and in things for like basic staples, you know, food and grocery stores, stuff like that. Supply chain issues are causing that to happen. So I'm fine. I'll be fine. It's annoying to have higher utility bills, but I'll be fine. But I'm not a typical citizen of this country. You know what I mean? Yeah. A person who's working, who's living in precarity, who's, who's had, like I said, a, a lost generation level of fucking, you know, zero income growth in the last decade plus, uh, you know, in a country that's now suddenly more expensive. Um, and a lot of it comes back to what you were describing previously. Like the reason why gas prices are going up because it's privatized. The reason why we have the most expensive rail travel in, in, in Europe, because it's all privatized. Mm-hmm. The reason why, you know, rent is insane and why they're not building new public housing to in any way that could match the demand because there's, they've suspended this in Scotland and I don't think they had it in Northern Ireland, but they, in England, uh, you have a right as a council tenant to buy legally. The council cannot refuse to sell you the unit you're living in. And what that created was from the early eighties onward, people who had been living in state built state subsidized housing with you know, incredibly low rents bought their units. And most of these people, many of these people have gone on to retire outside of the cities or wherever, but they have now built up an asset portfolio of formerly state owned housing. Yeah. And it's an enclosure of the commons. Yes. And you can yes. only do that once. You can only do it once. <laughs> And, yep. and, and they've made it, they, Thatcher got mad at there being local resistance to her policies in terms of council budgets and stuff in the 80s. So they basically changed the laws. So councils have almost no way to significantly, like, to raise money on their own. And, like, they have almost no control over their own budgets either. Wow. Uh, like, basically, they're like, oh, there's this local democracy thing and that fucking sucks. We're getting rid of it. <laughs> and that, that, that's the thing is that that's another one of these examples. Like, I made this comment when people talk about the winter of discontent, which was in 1978 to 79. Uh, there was a, a winter of pretty significant industrial action at the time when Britain was was contending pretty hard with, uh, you know, double digit inflation. Yeah. And that led to a series of in lo- mostly localized shortages and, and strikes. But enough of the national sort of media consensus revolved around this is all labor's fault. That led to Thatcher being elected. And whereas if Callahan had had an election before the winter, it's entirely possible that that, you know, 
Callahan, the labor leader who was already cutting the welfare state, would have remained prime minister. Mm. But to, to, to finish my point here, um, I make the argument that, that if you look at like the winter of discontent and the, the, the story behind it, very few people really experienced any extended problem. Like It did happen. There were issues, but it, it's been hyped up massively. But the big salient point for me is that if you take like what is treated as normal in this country, like child poverty, child hunger, food insecurity, rent burden, homelessness, mm-hmm. you know, low, low, low income growth, uh, unstable employment, erosion of workers' rights, all these things. If you can compare that to what was considered normal in 1978, it's fucking apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. And that to me is just a statement of how far this country has fallen in terms of what used to be a thing you could rely on that just doesn't exist anymore. Wow. Well, you, you talk about the winter of discontent as well, right? I think it's important to sort of, just as you can sort of see Thatcherism and Johnsonism as kind of echoes, uh, uh, echoes one of another, is now it's a similar sort of echoing of the winter of discontent, but where Thatcherism was a sort of very evil but very real political ideology, mm-hmm. the opposite being, well, the opposite of the second point being true for Boris Johnsonism, the sort of the opposite again is true of sort of this winter of skyrocketing energy prices of um of sort of uh, mass shortages of sort of of, of sort of starvation and so on in as much as like the winter of discontent was like yeah again like as you said nate it existed but it was largely a sort of collaboration between the sun which had switched from supporting uh, labor to supporting the conservatives and the PR firm Sachi and Sachi, mm. right? Yes, um, they, 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 they cooked was... up the winter of discontent. You're well, saying. yeah, there there was a gravedigger strike for like two weeks somewhere in Merseyside. But if you ask people with like the false remembered version of people who were born in 1981 but think they lived through it, they'll be like, "Oh, the bodies were piling up in the streets." <laughs> it's like that just didn't fucking happen. In in fact, right, like the the picture on the poster itself, right, was a queue from a, 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 in front of an unemployment office. They had to they had to get volunteers from a young conservatives group to go turn up to be photographed as the queue for the people in front of the unemployment office. Mm. But yet, but yet, but yet, that winter of discontent through the kind of public relations that you're talking about has become just like the Blitz, this other like epochal moment in British history well, yeah, to show a stiff Corb- upper lip and and why austerity needs to continue. We got through it then we can get through it now or or, or the famous refrain jeremy corbyn will take us back to the 1970s Mm -hmm. like oh you mean the time when income inequality was at its lowest and income growth was at its highest like fuck i mean yeah don't get me wrong like because of the uh opec embargo because of the oil crisis in the early 70s there were you know there was time when for example people were having to do a three-day work week and there were power cuts in the early 70s Uh, obviously like inflation and um there were there were significant problems in the 70s with the state's ability to sort of manage its finances at at a time when you know all western post-war growth was was being eroded in britain it was hitting pretty hard like inflation was very bad and sustained for a long time hilariously britain uh applied for and received an imf bailout loan basically on the conditions of uh having to start cutting its its national budget and it was later determined that you know at the same time when North Sea oil and gas exploration was happening, that they had actually gotten their figures wrong and like their, their revenue was actually stronger mm. than they thought. They actually didn't need the IMF loan, but at the time it appeared they would. And it's, you could, the, the surest way to make yourself go fucking insane if you care about British politics is to engage in counterfactuals because there are so many bad decisions or missed opportunities where like if only we had just and 
you, I don't know if you wanted to talk about uh, some of the echoes of that today, but like, I feel like me and Riley, as people who were pretty all in for Jeremy Corbyn, we, yeah. we got to experience that, you know, in, in Technicolor. Oh, uh, we're, we, we're definitely going to talk about that. I wanted to, to maybe, I don't know if this is soapboxing. This is me kind of with you guys working out this idea that I've had about the 1970s. Not sure if it's relevant to this, but it's, it's UK centric. Uh, the, the big scary thing in the 1970s was worker control and worker power, really. I mean, it seems to me that that was the most frightening thing. And it seems to me that by the 1970s, um, in, the, in, the, in the Anglophone world, but, but more broadly across Europe, you kind of had this peak of the post-war consensus, and you had a moment where you either needed to deepen uh, working-class control of work and uh, deepen the social democratic welfare state uh, or even move towards another type of system altogether, a deepening of, of socialism like the Meidner plan, for example, in Sweden. But, like, that was fought so vociferously, and, and, the, nat- and, the, and the miner strike in the U.K. is the perfect example of this, yeah. fought so vociferously and successfully by the ruling class that uh, Plan B uh, became, like neoliberalism, as we call it, right, became the sort of default option. But there was this counterfactual out there. There was, like, real attempts in the 70s, and they obviously didn't succeed, in order to actually move towards something types uh, like socialism. The problem, of course, was the political leadership uh, of the unions and the, and the Labor Party and the working class. But the 70s is such a tragic moment because um, you see with the amount of militancy that existed in the UK, and as you said, like relatively egalitarian conditions, that a, a breakthrough for the working class was possible in the UK, maybe unlike anywhere else in the entire world at that moment. Yeah, and and I don't know. I I think that there is obviously the bigger picture of a lot of what you would call sort of center-right liberal hysteria around the revolutions of the 1970s. And I think there was definitely this, this, this thing kind of coalescing around monetarism and, you know, the sort of the Pinochet experiment writ large. Like, I think that there was, there was this counter momentum of, uh, of reaction. And so I think that th- there was definitely... Uh, like a a harder conflict, if you will, at the time, like there was, there was definitely like a much more pitched ideological battle. I think the thing that's interesting about the UK uh, is that if you look at, for example, what was happening, you know, there, there were significant gains being made um, from the perspective of workers. If you look at like the thing that kicked off the winter of discontent in terms of the strike action was the fact that like the government basically set a target and said, we refuse to, to concede wage rises any higher than this percentage. And I can't remember the figure. Mm. Uh, and if, if it, we, we absolutely will not negotiate anything higher. And then Ford workers in Dagenham, which is in uh, East, East London towards Essex went on strike. And then the, the government immediately breached that. And they, mm-hmm. they granted them higher than the threshold they had said right. for pay pay rises. And so, more workers obviously were like, well, fuck, we can get more pay. Let's keep doing, you know, because, yeah. you know, like I said at the time, you had, in, you know, inflation in the, you know, 10 to 15% range. And so the government, one point that I would make is that, like, there was a much stronger, from what I understand, trade unionist aspect to the Labor Party. But the Labor Party has always been a weird kind of strange bedfellows association of people. More and Methodist that, than Marxist is always what they say, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and and I think that, I mean, quite frankly, the fact that, that Britain even has a welfare state in the beginning is just the the, the, the weird historical coincidence that 
um, by the, you know, the troops all registered to vote and they fucking hated the war. And, uh, you know, Churchill was an asshole. It, it just people forget that Churchill just like ran his mouth and said really fucked up things that pissed people off. And, you know, so labor wins this amazing majority in 1945 and they actually use it. Um, and then in 19, 1997, they win a similarly large majority and they're just like, let's just keep doing Thatcherism. Um, yeah, and, but, and, if I can say as well, yeah, one please, of the yeah, things that people forget about one of the things that people I think don't understand about sort of laborism is that much of what laborism is about is about trying to convince British capital that you're a safe pair of hands to run the yes, country. Yes. Um, and so what, like what, what is what, what I think a lot of people forget about Blair, about Blair's victory is that his, his victory was actually a quite standard laborist one, which was to say, essentially, I'm going to be, uh, you, which is basically, yeah, you can trust me. I'm not going to be doing anything too crazy. And the um, the most recent sort of at all that point, a sort of uh, outgoing John Major administration had plunged the UK into this enormous, embarrassing problem with uh, the European exchange rate mechanism. Yes. That's what basically allowed the Bank, Bank of England to be sort of, you know, broken by Soros. Mm-hmm. Um, Literally, and if people don't know that. That sounds, that sounds <laughs> fucked up, but you have to understand Soros' investment fund basically saw it coming and bet against the pound and made, made billions, billions of dollars billions doing of that. Do- that is so not a right-wing conspiracy. That's yeah, really it's not real. a right-wing conspiracy. Like Sor- Soros, Soros is, is yes. you know, the source of lots of fucking <laughs> insane Facebook rants, but in this case, it was his investment fund seeing an opportunity and taking it. Betting against the pound. Yeah. Yes, betting against again. the pound because, because the, they could see that the British were going to crash out of the ERM and, and you know, much like other crises that we're facing just pretend nothing's happening because that just wouldn't be proper (laughs) and you know i I make this comparison that british people are like oh well yeah you know only one room of my house is on fire it seems like it would be out of sorts (laughs) to call the fire brigade like it's it is a wild mentality that i can't understand but um riley yes riley please keep going what i was saying right is that blair was essentially sort of swept to victory that way right and so it's not even so much that you you sort of misuse uh, the, the, the at that labor sort of misuses its chances in office. It's that what its chances in office are designed to do essentially is sort of ratify and make functional the revolutions that are carried out by the exactly. Tories. Exactly, it is the it's left sort of wing been of like capital. that. Yeah, and it's kind of been because ever after sort of the the Great Depression uh, in America and the Second World War here, there was this bat there was these sort of big moves forward, the creation of these sort of welfare states, the sort of the New Deal, whatever. And all politics from then on is just about the slow ratcheting back of those things. Um, and Britain had one that was ratcheted very, very high um, in no small part because, you know, we, we definitely uh, sort of kept a lot of um, uh, quite militant organized labor for, you know, a little, a little longer. Um, but, you know, I mean, our, our sort of, our laborist tradition is all about saying, well, we're going to whatever, that's when the Tories became revolutionary and the dominant force in the labor party became one of sort of, you know, um, uh, moderation, especially sort of, um, and again, it, it wasn't always thus, right? There was these still, it's a, it's a site of struggle and contest and so on. And, um, but that, you know, we, from sort of Kinnick to Blair, um, through to uh, sort of Brown, uh, to Miliband and Corbin and now Starmer, it has been this struggle, mostly won by the right, that says what we're going to do is we're going to ratify and fix what the, the vision that the Tories have, mm. because they're essentially, you know, um, to they're sort of in, instead of being the sort of you know um, you know uh, square dancing yahoos that sort of liberals fear in the United States, it's kind of um, 
Lucian uninterested uh, Eaton graduates who are sort of just having a spot of fun with the with with the country, right? <laughs> In between and, investment banking jobs. Yeah. Well, I, I would point, I would point something out too that I think is is pretty fundamental to understanding like how you had this unbelievable amount of uh, of change post World War II when Labor was elected when Clement Attlee was the Prime Minister, but. You know, the, the labor won that enormous majority in 1945. Uh, I think it was 1951 that they they left office. Um, but one of the initial fractures, uh, believe it or not, was that you know the National Health Service didn't come into existence until 1948. And in 1951, in order to uh, more or less free up budget funds to support Britain joining the UN mission in Korea they introduced dental charges. Mm. So it happened that fast. In, within three years of the NHS existing, they're like, oh, teeth, luxury bones. You, you should pay for that. <laughs> uh, an Iron Bevan, who basically was like the intellectual and moral backbone of the establishment of the NHS, resigned from cabinet over this. Mm. People forget this, that like, you know, th- that, that, that urge to chip away and bargain away, that started almost immediately but that led to decades of uh really corny jokes about british teeth right yeah yeah well i mean yeah (laughs) there's the fucking shit yeah (laughs) which is which is which is funny to me because i don't i mean i'm sure you've seen this you know i worked in fast food when i was in college like i i people in america who don't come from the suburbs tend to not have great teeth either yeah but people people in america forget that like when they crack jokes about like yeah british people didn't really do orthodontics that much unless they were necessary you know what i mean but like it's just it's, it's like the it's like the bad food thing it's like a lot of that had to do with the great depression and rationing right, <laughs> you know right, what right. I mean? which lasted but, into uh, the 50s as well yeah 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 rationing rationing lasted into the 1950s um you know uh my mom moved to america when she was seven when when, when they left britain as i understand i believe uh rationing was still in effect and then she her dad was an american airman if he moved to america and they didn't and she was recalls being surprised by this because you know they had been living on yeah like this country was fucking destroyed i mean this this country was was bombed to shit like one of the reasons why there was such a big public housing building program was because ha- the houses that hadn't been bombed by the germans were in many cases like slums and not in, not really habitable so I don't know. Like I'm oversimplifying a lot, but I think you have to understand back to Riley's point though, to to Riley's point, I'll hand it back over is that labor and laborism, it has always been uncomfortable with like the, the, you know, the, the miners who actually believe in socialism, for example, you know, and that, that tension was there even in like labor's greatest triumphs, you know, post-war. And it absolutely was there uh, under Blair. It was marginalized significantly under Blair uh, who then, you know, joined the U.S. invasion of Iraq and uh, basically became the most unpopular politician in this country. Um, and it was there under Corbyn. And basically that, that, that right-wing tendency uh, ultimately led to Corbyn's unseating. Um, so it's always been the case. Right. And I, I think what this, it's, it's simplified, but it points to something that I think is sort of pretty essential to understanding sort of how we came to be where we are, is that you know, the story in, of British politics is essentially always kind of the same. It is finding the way to do sort of, generally speaking, it's finding the way to do as little as possible in order to ensure as much social reproduction as necessary. Uh Right. And so this is why the direction that the British state takes is always so sort of weird. It's why you'll have uh, it's why you'll have Tories implementing a gigantic wage subsidy 
during the pandemic. Um, it's why you'll also have, uh, you know, labor is why you'll also have like, like sort of the NHS sort of starting to charge for dentistry only a, a couple of years after its founding. It's because most things are done sort of without planning to solve whatever crisis is sort of right in front of you uh, by Bubbling people along. who, yeah, by people who are just sort of trying to make it to tomorrow, mm-hmm. more yeah, or I less. Mean, well, this, if you look, if you look at some of the stuff with like the competition rules that force the NHS to seek contract tenders from, you know, basically to seek. Uh, competitive tenders in every echelon of the NHS's supply chain and services like procurement, those were introduced under Blair. Those, those aren't, those, that's not Thatcherism. That was, that's Blairism. Like the establishment of NHS trusts, the establishment of inserting a profit motive into a nationalized, and I, and not just national, like in the forties, they nationalized hospitals. Like they actually did that. But this, this sort of forced, forced uh, market element, that's, that's the labor party that did that. That's Blair, you know, um, some of the really bizarre excessive things about sort of disciplining the workers and humiliating people on benefits. Like that wasn't Thatcher. That was Blair. Thatcher cut the shit. Like they should cut it. Like her government cut stuff, but the really vindictive, weird prying stuff, the idea of introducing like speakers that, you know, make a high pitched noise to like that only teenagers can hear to basically scare off teenagers from like public streets. This is real. real. He's not joking. I'm not lying. (laughs) Blair didn't create those obviously, but that, that they became commercially available Mm. during Blair's premiership. Like that to me is like, if Thatcher is, you know, like, they're clubbing the miners and fucking then the BBC is editing the footage to make it look like the miners charged the police. This is the thing that happened. Then under Blair, it's like we're invading Iraq and we're installing anti-teen loudspeakers, (laughs) but we did create a a universal pre-K program sort of that's now since been defunded. So no (laughs) one can hate us. So to get to the point, like to sort of come to, because Sean, I've been looking at your notes, right? And to sort of come round to the point that you have at the end, your question is, does any fraction of the UK ruling class have a persuasive vision for the future at this point? No. No, no, absolutely that's, not. That was no, you know, not I, at all. I, I can't. I, ha, I was thinking about this yesterday and the day before. I was, was writing this together. I think that's the real money question. But it's even like worse based on what you guys are telling me than I thought it was. So it's not even just that the UK ruling class. And I think that like the bourgeoisie in general, we've seen from the COVID crisis in the United States, in Britain, in Europe, all over the place, has reached a historical moment where they're not only where they're like it, they, there's no plan. Right. It's like the contradictions are so great that it's impossible for them to rule. But in the UK, it's even worse, which is that it seems to me that Boris Johnson at all don't even want to rule. Like it's not even like, oh, well, we got to formulate a plan. It's just muddled. You're almost right. right. They want to rule. They don't want to govern. They don't want to govern. Okay, yeah. Yeah, they They want the deference. They want the and they certainly want the position of influence to be able to enrich in themselves and their friends. Something that I, I want to really briefly touch on is that during COVID, you had like like small town mayor diverting the, the the town budget into his like the pizza parlor his brother owns level of corruption on the national scale and nothing nothing will be done about it nothing has been nothing will be no one cares the nhs uh, was basically ordered to spend 12 billion pounds on a track and trace app that fundamentally does not work and this was procured through uh, basically like friends of friends contracting for a company that has never made apps ever before. Uh, A lot of the shortages of personal protective equipment during the initial part of the pandemic, uh, a lot of these happened because 
people who had businesses got registered like a, you know, a week after COVID struck by, you know, people who had donated to the Tory party and suddenly were being granted multi-million pound contracts to procure mm. PPE. Most of which when, you know, the, the scandal was because when they did procure something, they bought it secondhand and it was expired. Mm. Like this was mm. happening constantly. Matt Hancock, the former health secretary, like engineered a contract for a friend of his who was just a guy who owned the pub he likes to drink at like that level of just just bizarrely parochial small time like no one's watching i'm going to stick my hand in the cookie jar level of corruption but this is like from a national government in like a once in a century crisis and they but nobody is watching because cap- because the as you said the the press the running bourgeois capitalist oh, dog oh, press they, is a, is part of the state apparatus essentially a hundred percent hundred percent if you living in this country America's press is awful but living in this country and seeing the way the British press functions like it will disabuse you of any notion of 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 you know of a this country being a functional liberal democracy if that's even a thing you want to aspire to <laughs> and it will you will very quickly identify like that the press is just like basically much like the Tories are, you know, hiring their friends to, to, to do a 12 billion pound app that doesn't work. They are, it's their friends who run the newspapers and they will tell you up is down and left is right. And you're, you are, you are a psychopath and probably racist against white people if you disagree with them. <laughs> and, and, and my mm. God, all I can say is, and I'm sorry because I'm talking so much. I've got a lot to say, but Chris Matthews, I believe it was, who said that Bernie Sanders was going to execute people like him in Central Park. Imagine that every minute of every day for four <laughs> and a half years. And that's what it was like being a Corbyn supporter in this country. Yo, 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 <laughs> every yo. day, every minute of every day, every news story for four and a half I, years was that level of insane. I'm, I'm actually shocked that this episode turned out even darker than I imagined it would. Oh, okay. my just God. To finish, just to finish my sort of some of, some of my thoughts, so give, put a little bow on it. Yeah, please, please Riley, do. go ahead. I'll, yeah, I'll stop. Sort of beyond just, beyond sort of party politics, right? You have to understand, like, much like in, in the U.S., the, both parties, the media and the state are all sort of the same, the same organization. And that one of the things, right, is that we don't just lack a vision for the future, but I think, and I, I hope that sort of our long discussion sort of through this history of the latter 20th century in the U.K. sort of show that they don't just not have a vision for the future, they are actively hostile to anything that looks like one. Mm. Yes. And if you if you and because having a vision for the future among other things is seriousness it's not sort of fun and light it's not something you can talk about at a dinner party or whatever because fun the thing that drives this country so insane is that it is so the people who are in control of it are deeply 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 cosseted and they believe so so intensely in their own little bits of myth making that that is essentially insulated entirely from change mm. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I, uh, and I think that the, the issue, I think one of the most just cynically hilarious, but also dark things that I've seen recently in terms of how this stuff happens is if you recently saw the, um, yet another iteration of leaked financial documents showing offshore tax havens and how the ruling class to include Tony Blair, um, yeah, a Pandora papers, you know, have profited from, from a system of total impunity and a uh, friend of the show, Ann Applebaum, uh, basically got on Twitter and said, <laughs> I saw uh, the shit. <laughs> we know why hasn't the party run on ending this, this corruption? Uh, surely they would win votes. And then, you know, McDonald and, I was very and uh, Corbin just jumped right John in. John McDonald jumped in and I was very happy to see lots and lots of people just posting nothing but Ann Applebaum's completely insane headlines about <laughs> How Jeremy Corbin. How Corbin is like a Putin plant and, and shit yes. from four or five and, years and, ago. And, 
or like stories like people calling Jeremy Corbyn the absolute boy is proof that labor is misogynist. That was a headline. <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn is wearing a tie, but he didn't like to wear ties before. That means that he's a he's an autocrat who craves power. <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn pronounced Jeffrey Epstein, Epstein's wrong. He yeah. pronounced his name Epstein instead of Epstein. It's anti-Semitic. And, <laughs> and that's anti-Semitic because it reveals the, the, and I'm not lying, somebody went into this long thread about the orthopoetics of foreignizing, you know, people <laughs> even when they're citizens of the country. And it's just like, like Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, anyway, so long story Say short. Say what you uh, want about Jeffrey Epstein, all right? Let's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, made, they managed to basically, uh, Jeremy Corbyn basically made the comment saying that, like, that about the royal family uh, when asked this in a stupid, you know, just completely canned debate, basically saying that the focus should be on, on, on you know, Jeffrey Epstein's victims and you shouldn't be using the, the institution of the British Royal family to, you know, to try to like gin up support for a thing when Prince Andrew has, was obviously like an affiliate of Epstein's and it got, but he pronounced Epstein's name Epstein. And so then that became the story was, uh, Jeremy Corbyn is anti-Semitic because he pronounced, uh, he pronounced this guy's name wrong. And it's just like, when we, when I watch this happen, or during the election, when they they uh, Boris Johnson showed up, hung over as fuck to a Remembrance Sunday event, and put the the memorial wreath on upside down on the monument, so the news just ran footage of him from 2016 doing it as a London mayor, or like when he got laughed at for like a stupid answer he gave in a in a debate, and they. Uh, edited it to remove all the laughter. Like, so if you saw the live version, you heard it, but if you watched the replay of it, you just, you, you, it was all cut out to make him seem. I, I hate to interrupt. My cousin yeah. and her boyfriend have just got here, so I got to run. Oh, okay, okay cool. Yeah. Thank but, you but so just, much, Riley. Yeah. Long story short, yeah, you, you'd lose your mind. So it's, it's, <laughs> uh, I, 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 I once again, have talked too long about this, but my God, this country. So, Dude, Riley, I know you got to go. <laughs> it's pretty cool, right? But it's always a pleasure to be on, Sean. Yeah, thank and, you so much. Uh, we'll have you back. Please, please do. I'm, I will always talk about this. Good man. Appreciate right. it, brother. And, have a good one. And, yeah, have a good one, Riley. And then, Sean, thank you. Thanks so much for, for letting me rant and rave about this. No, this, um, was, this was really dark, but really good to, to get a true sense that, you know, as I sit here 3,000 miles away, you know, I'm actually, it sounds like the reports of like the darkness and the fall of British <laughs> civilization are but, all true. Although it's, it seems like a slow motion disaster. It seems yes. like these supply chain issues are going to continue, but this cosseted petty bourgeois landowning class and the Etonians are just going to keep sailing on and muddling from crisis to crisis and that the press will never do anything about it. And that because the only real movement that could have done anything, you know, to solve this, albeit from the left wing of capital, the Corbynism uh, movement, is now completely dead. It's just yes. sort of this like decline into senescence and futility and 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 obsequiousness to power. It's uh, oof, man. You you yeah. might want to come home soon, dude. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I'd love to. I'd love to come home and see my family. Uh, you know. But it's, it's weird because, I mean, this is a beautiful country and the city of London is just a fascinating place. And you see how much potential this place has to be yeah. a much more decent and just it doesn't have to be this way. I, I'm loath to make a direct one to one comparison, but I do find it very funny that another country that discovered oil and natural gas in the 70s, uh, Norway, managed to just be like, oh, let's have a permanent fund and use this to fund our state. Whereas Britain is like, let's fucking privatize everything. <laughs> um, but it's, it's weird. Like, I don't necessarily think it's hopeless, but I think that we're currently locked in this situation where um, the electoral routes to change are completely foreclosed because the, um, the summarized version of it is that post-Corbyn, 
uh, the Labor Party leader who won the labor election basically ran on pledges and said, I'm basically going to be, I'm going to be the mythical Corbynism without Corbyn. Mm-hmm. And uh, then installed all of the most hard right members of the party into his inner circle. And purged and they the shit out of. Purged the shit out of everyone they possibly yeah. can. And basically have said like, uh, you will, you, you will never have as good of an opportunity to select a leader as you had under Corbyn, because we'll make it harder for people to select the leader. You will never be able to replace your MP. We don't have primaries in this country. And so you will never be able to replace your MP. Like you have no say in who your MP is. Um, they're kicking people out for everything they possibly can. Uh, they, they just, they just suspend the rules and refuse to even allow debate in constituency labor parties over issues. Um, it's just, it's just basically being browbeaten by the most divorced dads in existence. <laughs> and, it's so what I'm saying is that I don't think that there there's no hope, but I think that the electoral routes to change have been completely closed off. I agree. Like that's just, that has gone for a generation that is, if any of your listeners are interested, there's a guy, he periodically de- deactivates his account, but one of the smartest people that I've ever met on British politics, British guy, his name is Owen Hatherley. Mm. He's a, a, I believe he's a culture editor at Tribune magazine. Tribune magazine does a lot of really, really good journalism. I'd strongly recommend it. It's well, a left, left uh, publication. Owen, what was his name? Hatherly. Hatherly. I'll put that uh, in the show and, notes. And Owen, Owen, Owen's great. He's a friend of our show. He's really, really nice, genuinely incredibly nice guy. He does a lot of work about uh, architecture and like, uh, you know, social housing in this country. He knows a fuckload about this. But one of the points he made after 2019 was that there was a lot of rationalization and sort of like, oh, we can get him next time. Like we can, we can come back from this. And Owen said something. He's like, listen, you don't want to hear this. You don't want to believe it, but I'm telling you as someone who's been around this and who knows this stuff, this is worse than 1983. Mm. This is it. We are done for, we will be those old ponytail grandpas and sandals at the (laughs) CLP meeting. The next time there's a labor leader who's on the left wing, like it's done. I mean, what you say, I think is true. I I compare how we feel, how I feel right now in October, 2021, um, compared to when I was in you guys' studio a couple of years ago and yeah. during the episode when we talked about, uh, you know, you had on both sides of the Atlantic the possibility for there to be this sort of social democratic resurgence. Of course, there's Corbyn, but then there's also Bernie Sanders. And it seemed as though even somebody like me who didn't believe in an electoral path towards socialism or communism, uh, it seemed to me that there it was plausible that you could have that existing alongside a movement you could have yes. an electoral aspect of things now but we've been i think sorely disabused of that everybody and i think that if anything that's that this is a moment of clarity for all of us to see what yeah. starmer and company have done uh in order to absolutely obliterate uh not just corbin but also the chances that you're talking about for the next couple of generations of anything mm-hmm. to happen in the electoral sphere and then of course what happened with bernie sanders and his sellout to biden however you want to play it right i mean i think that that we just realize now that uh even were that a possibility in the past you know it's certainly not in the future and that we have to start fighting in different ways and that the electoral yeah. sphere is closed off to us because a lot of reasons. The the, the UK basically recently passed a, a bill that effectively allows the police to declare any any public protest a nuisance, and anyone who refuses to disperse post that declaration it can be sentenced to as long as ten years in prison. Wow. Um, they've also there. There's been some recent stuff with environmental protests that's causing them to do even more expanded powers in these regards. You know, similarly, um, there was recently a huge case in this country where uh, a police officer used. Um, he stalked 
uh, abducted, raped, and murdered a young woman. Yeah. And he his his pretext for arrest, arresting her uh, was COVID rules. And then um, when there was a vigil for her murder, um, the police showed up and started cracking heads and mm-hmm. you know slamming women to the pavement and arresting them and stuff like that. And uh, he pled guilty and um, you know was recently sentenced to life in prison. And the I think the reason I bring this up is because the police turned around and said, oh, if you if you feel unsafe, you should call our equivalent of 911-999 or you should flag a bus driver or you should demand to see their credentials or you should, you know, all these things. And it's like, first of all, the, so you're basically saying run from the cops if you don't <laughs> consent to being arrested. Like that's going to work out fucking great to sure. anyone who deals with the cops in this country didn't they shoot a black fancy. didn't they shoot a black kid in the in the tube station like a few years ago for running yeah, from and the was, cops they 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 they, they shot they, he didn't run he, he didn't, didn't run. run. They, they lied. Shot. They planted a gun on him wow. and lied and said he had run. Mark Duggan, yes, 100%. Um, or no, I take that back. Not Mark Duggan. Uh, uh, Demenzies. I, I, I didn't live in this country, and so I'm not super familiar with that I case, but I do know that he, that he that he that there, there's a numerous uh, numerous cases of this sort of thing happening. Yeah. Um, the cops in this country, they don't shoot people as often because they don't have guns, but their behavior is the same as cops in America. Mm. And the, the, the point being here is that, like, I'm not trying to derail it into a discussion with the cops so much as to say that like that response of like, Oh, well, well, have you tried calling the manager? Like maybe that'll stop a cop from using his cop powers to murder you, uh, to abduct you and rape you and murder you. Like, I think that response and that being treated as serious is an example of where we are right now, that there wasn't any pushback that the labor party, the day before Wayne cousins was sentenced, uh, debuted its new its new advocacy group labor friends of the police hmm. you know stuff like that happening yeah. and then you, then then the response is just like oh well well surely you can just uh you, we can find a reasonable way to stop a homicidal psycho cop from killing you you know that doesn't require any systemic change and that's that's i think the the, the, the position where we're in right now is that the people who are notionally in charge of a governing and b presenting their vision of the future have no solutions to yeah. any of the problems. That they've we're facing ab- they've abrogated their responsibility. 100%. I mean, 100%. The, like when we talk about the ruling class, we're talking about the combination of politicians, the capitalists and the media. But ultimately, at the end of the day, and I'm going to sound like a communist, God forbid, saying this, <laughs> but uh, the entire bourgeoisie has abrogated its ability to rule anymore. All of this, like the back and forth with the covid crisis about like we have to shut things down. No, we need to open them up. Showed that the profit system, you know, the system that reproduces the capital class is literally antithetical to our ability to live and be safe and be healthy and 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 prosperous in our lives and so i think like since on both both uh, sides of the Atlantic Ocean, the capitalist class and the and the ruling class has decided that they abrogate their responsibilities. I think the only thing for us to do, and I know this is hard, is to take that responsibility upon ourselves as the working class and start to actually come up with solutions that help us, you know, that instead of hurt us and ultimately get rid of this nasty little profit system with its cosseted treat boys and, uh, I don't know, create an egalitarian world for all of us. And I would say this, too, that there are points of hope in this country. I mean, you see great organizations resisting things like this. You know, you see these bright points of light, people coalescing to form human shields around deportation vans and and force the cops to release the people they're trying to arrest and take to immigration detention. You see organizations like uh, Sisters Uncut basically resisting police violence against women and things along these lines. You see this incredible activist energy that is here because basically if you're under 45 in this country, 
your prospects for having the same living standard as your parents or grandparents are, are quite low unless yeah. you come from a very privileged background. United and I mean, States obviously that's well, not everybody, you know. but, yeah. but things are getting, things are getting tangibly demonstrably worse for young people. And so you, there is this incredible energy. There is this incredible enthusiasm behind it. And like Corbynism may be dead, but the animating impulse behind it is not. But I think the the take for me is more that there was this hope that Britain had horrible outcomes for people for healthcare prior to the establishment of the NHS. You know, it was basically, if you had money, you got healthcare. If you didn't, you died. Mm -hmm. And labor won and with the power it had, it was able to create the NHS, which is not perfect, but which, you know, massively improved the quality of life for people in this country. And there was this hope that like one more push, we can do it. We almost won in 2017. We could do it again. If we get this power, we can fix it. And like, I know it's a naive belief, but it did seem like, ah, this one weird trick will allow you to, to, you know, undo centuries of total walled off capture of power by the elite of this country. And obviously we failed massively. We were wiped out and now the really hard work starts. And I believe, like, I, I don't want to leave this country. I, mean, I like it here. I'm happy to be here. It's insane. And it annoys me, but like there's things about this country that I love. And, and, but I recognize that like, it would have been so nice if we could have just done that and it had worked, yeah. <laughs> but it didn't. It didn't, and I don't think electoralism is really going to provide a viable route in this country no, for not, change. And not but, in the United but, States either, obviously. But the desire to change is there, and I think, crucially, it is very, very hard to tell people, you know, who have only seen their quality of life get worse and their prospects get worse over the course of their lifetimes that, you know, actually, you just need glasses because we live in the best country on Earth. Right. Um, I don't think that that's going to be convincing. I do think there will be a rupture. I don't know what it'll look like. I remain hopeful, I, but I do but that's, too. But it's a long, it's a long-term process, man. And like I said, like I hope to see the day when we fucking crush these people. Maybe I can't say that, but you no, know, no, no, no. This get, is not the UK. Get, you can say I hope we crush these people. There's no laws against that. <laughs> figurative and literal revenge for what happened in 2019. But it. I have resigned myself to the fact that I will probably be the oldest ponytail grandpa in sandals <laughs> when that does happen, because it's just it's going to be a long road. And, eh. and the funny thing is, the person who's the most sanguine about this, Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, he's like, he's he been knows, in the trenches knows, he, for seventy years. He's he knows he knows deep down, and he even said like he's he never expected to get as far as he did, and obviously he's massively disappointed with what happened. But you know, like he's he's still at it for all his faults. Like as a guy who was just far too nice to be what he was doing. Yeah. Uh, I think history kind of overcame him, and uh, you know Bernie Sanders as well. Bernie Sanders is much more cucked by the Democratic Party at this point, right? But like, there's no reason to look at a Jeremy Corbyn type figure or a John McDonald type figure and say, well, oh, they're fucking sellouts, they're stupid suck dems or whatever. You know that the 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 period from twenty what sixteen to like twenty twenty was a real moment in time and now we're in a different one and we need to be realistic about what the future looks like and it doesn't look like voting for like this last gasp of boomers to try to fix the fucking problems that they've caused in the world it looks like people our age and younger maybe a little bit older kind of like building power you have a you're talking about bright spots over there in the uk we're in a strike wave right now in the united states yeah it's incredible I'm, i'm so happy to see it it's it's like a, it's about fucking time because I don't think and I think you're right about this as well I don't think that people young workers are going to take this shit lying down because you know as as the next ten or twenty years shake out right this kind of ossified um, 
boomer ruling class is going to pass away. And meanwhile, not even just climate change, but just in terms of the crises of capital, we're going to have to start doing something. We're going to have to. So I look forward to it. I, uh, I appreciate, Nate, you being on the show and taking some extra time with us. Uh, this was a really, really great episode. Thank you so much for having me and Riley, Sean. This has been really fun. And and I just, uh, I, I would definitely say check out Tribune Magazine, check out Owen Hatherley. If you're interested in some of the stuff about Britain in the 70s, there's a great book by a guy who I would say is probably, I mean, he's, he's not, I don't think you would call him a communist or a socialist, but I think he's like certainly authentically on the left in Britain and not like, uh, you know, a Blairite. Paul Mason. An- no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> His name is Andy Beckett, and he wrote a book called When the Lights Went Out, What Really Happened to Britain in the 70s. Oh, cool. And uh, great book with an even better bibliography if any of the topics in that book interest you. I'm going to buy that myself right now. Actually. It's a phenomenal book, and, and, and it, you can see the seeds of fascism being sown at the time, but it talks it talks about the three-day week. It talks about the power cuts, the oil crisis, the winter of discontent, um, the IMF crisis, uh, all that stuff. And you can learn a little bit about what the trigger moment, because that's the one thing you can say about the right. As much as we fucking hate them, they know how to wield power when they have it. Oh, <laughs> they sure. don't have, yeah. they don't have weird fucking, you know, uh, Kirsten cinemas fucking <laughs> having their, their, their completely corporate bot crises of confidence to stop yeah. their agenda. Like they know how to wield power and, and, and you can learn a lot from that. But, um, Hell yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm very grateful to have a chance to talk to you. I hope your fans have enjoyed this. And if you're, I'm not, I'm not as often a co-host on the show, but I do produce, but if you're interested in more British stuff and bad tech startup stuff, please listen to trash future. If you're not listening to trash future by now, what are you, what are you even doing with yourself? Tremendous, tremendous content guys. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again. And I hope you, I hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget to, don't forget to plug your other podcast too. Oh, that's correct. I also have a podcast that's uh, military and veterans news and culture stuff from a left-wing perspective, explicitly a left-wing anti-war perspective. That is uh, what a hell of a way to die. Um, and uh, I also produce uh, a show, uh, basically a, 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 an anti-James Bond movie, <laughs> James Bond movie podcast called Kill James Bond. Also uh, a great podcast. Very, very fun to edit. So, um, so oh, yeah, yeah, those are all things you can listen to. All right. Awesome. Um, all right. And now that... Uh those plugs are out of the way. This is Sean saying, uh, if you have not yet become a patron of the Antifada, please sign up today. We actually have a uh, subscription drive going. We have Antifada prize packs again. Uh, we're trying to get to the magical number of 1,917. So you can go to uh, patreon.com slash the Antifada and sign up and we'll send you some cool postcards and stuff like that. Thanks to everybody for listening and uh, yeah, we'll see you next week. Cut the shit, it's all jokes on Twitter, all jokes on Twitter. Do you say the wrong thing? There was smoke from Twitter and the man them I pull out your coat from Twitter. Like crack man stole with the coat goes quicker. You crackhead cunt don't know no killers. Don't mention J, cause you ain't no jigger. Mention my name for the clout, go figure. Know them niggas from the south, so real. I Wiley's a prick, I love talk shit, then he sobers up and then begs it. Begs it. I'm so big that the only thing bigger than me last year was Brexit. What? I can't tweet, I'm too reckless. I'm too BBC breakfast. Free smoke, so come get this. Disrespect, we don't get this. The old man's got a death wish. Old man, you regret this. Alright then, challenge accepted. Smoke and sight from the brothers I slept with. Wiley, lay off the crack, I don't like that. Online talking smack, I don't like that. You told me suck your mum, I don't like that. See, when I slap your face, you best fight that. Heavy is the head out now, so go buy that. They say that I'm pop, I don't mind that. All you pussy boys just say thank you. True, say I'm the one who brought grind back. Yeah.
The boy is just way too anointed yes. And I'm not mad, I'm disappointed Cause your first time's going in the toilet True. But there's more to come, I won't spoil it Still got smoke for your V-neck Started on J, so I'm guessing it's me next Your dad watched your bro get G-checked Bitch waiting, whole fan full of rejects Where was you when your little bro was moving nervous? You told me he deserved it No respect for you, you ain't earned it I'm Big Mike and I sing and rhyme They hate when I sing, but give them time Number one in this thing of mine And that's what makes me the king of grime So, boom. Alright, Wiley, man, I'm so disappointed.